Welcome to Breakthrough Radio, a global business radio show where smarter strategies deliver breakthrough results by adding an entrepreneurial touch driving today's profits. Now, get ready for three powerful breakthrough segments with Michelle Price. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you're tuning in to Breakthrough Radio from. This is Michelle Price, where we're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas today. And on Breakthrough Radio, we are celebrating nine years of talking about how to master the internal and external strategies for business. Well, it is the third Monday of the month, and that's when we hear from me, Michelle Price, a leadership keynote speaker and business strategist. The Breakthrough Tip is a short tip at the top of the show where you can go take action on that information right now. Our featured spot today is with Alexander (laughs) Jekowitz, the author of The Strategic Storyteller, Content Marketing for the Age of the Educated Consumer. Our featured interview is a 35-minute conversation that's a nice deep dive into the topic of the day to allow you to gain a much better understanding, level of knowledge, and application for your business. Then we wrap up this third Monday with our Breakthrough Bite and Yard Akalu on the future of workforce. The Breakthrough Bite is a 10- to 12-minute segment that's not as long as our deep dive interview and not as short as our Breakthrough Tip because we like meeting the learning styles of our listeners. I want to thank you for coming to listen to Breakthrough Radio. And if it's your first visit, please make sure you thank the person who told you about us. Here's the scoop. You're going to want to listen without distraction. And that's why you only need to write down one URL today. It's www.thebreakthroughradio.com. Now, every week you have access to a blog post that gives you the frame for the conversation for each episode. And that means that any and everything that we talk about today, something we may reference to or even give you a resource, we make sure and link to it there. Whether it's how to reach Alexander, Yard, or myself, make sure you do visit and connect with each one of us. Do more than follow. Reach out. Truly connect. Ask us a question, engage us in conversation, and of course, when it makes sense for your business, hire us. So let's go into our breakthrough tip today on leadership. How do you respond elevates or diminishes your leadership? Now think for a moment. How do you respond to what's happening all around you? You know, many times you probably didn't give a conscious thought to your responses. There's a difference between reaction, unconscious, and response, mindful and conscious. So today we're going to explore how to recognize when we move from reaction to response, ensuring that our leadership is delivering the most value in the moment. Now here are three ways our responses communicate the wrong thing as leaders. One or all of them on their own, they're not deal breakers. Yet if you engage in these styles frequently, you'll want to explore what is happening and find ways to elevate your actions as a leader. You know, routinely putting other needs before your own. This is number one here. So, you know, this is something we see a lot of women do that prevents them from being effective leaders. Yes, 
once in a while, it's important to put the needs of others above your own. You know, when there's a good cause for it and it aligns to the overall objective, you know, you're focused on as a leader. And we also understand the give first mentality. It's a very effective mindset for good leaders. Yet, like we discussed last month, when a strength has gone too far, it can become a detriment. So think about this. What's your opportunity here? You know, your opportunity to examine, do you routinely put others before yourself? Now, here's what that could look like so that you're not downplaying something that could be undermining your leadership. Pay attention to see if you're being a yes person to every request. I know this one really hurts a lot of people. And, you know, one of the things that Don Cooper, the sales heretic, has taught you guys here on Breakthrough Radio for years is it's just as important what you say no to as it is what you say yes to. Another way that that can show up is focusing on your team all the time and not advocating for yourself when it comes to assignments, to raises, to anything that could affect your scalability professionally. Another thing is frequently canceling personal plans for work obligations. And then also think about having the free time outside of work to pursue family or pursue other interests. Now, when you look at those four things, you can break uh, these habits, things in small incremental ways. The next time someone asks you to work on something that takes time away from your personal plans, you can respond with, it sounds good. And I've learned for me to bring my A game. It's just as important to balance my time for family and friends. You can ask Jacob. He said earlier this week that he's ready to take on a new project. Now, with that response, you've shown empathy for both them and you and gave a delegation recommendation. That's a really effective way to handle that. So here's the next one. When the opinions of others diminish your decision-making. You know, we've become a crowdsourcing world, and sometimes that's really, really beneficial. And there are times that, you know, because of it being a good thing, we tend to think that we need to do it all the time. Now, it has allowed us to tap into the experiences and the expertise of our friends and our colleagues. And, you know, another one of those good things that wasn't available until we have now, like, the Internet and social media came along and, and gave us an opportunity to kind of tap into that whole knowledge base. But here is where it's gone off the rails. When we give others' opinions leverage over our own decisions. You know, second-guessing choices and decisions uh, that are in your domain area, open the door for changing your path and your journey. A lot of times you just avoid conflict. And it sets you up to second-guess your own judgment. Now, a more effective way to handle this kind of situation is to ask them to share information with you. This will help you uncover their why inside of their own opinions. And that gives you better data 
to make decisions and choices from. Last but not least today, an activity that we see repeated over and over, and, and you know, we benefit from consciously changing it, all of us, is believing that what got you here will get you there. You know, as an only child, I learned to be just really responsible. <laughs> I hear this a lot from other people. Wow, you were like, one of the most responsible people I know. Well, some of it was expected for more than my parents, but society all around me is being the oldest. And well, this has served me well in business, and I've been able to climb the ladder of entrepreneurship because of this quality, I need to watch it up to a point. Now, my response to that expectation, it's always been to take the responsible role, and that brings with it a level of ownership that doesn't give my teammates what they need from me when it comes to things like delegating and trust and letting go or handling every single detail of the project. You know, to be effective, I've had to allow others to step up and take responsibility. My suggestion to you for this week is to ask yourself, where have I done these things? And then pay attention. You know, you will find yourself noticing them as they're happening, and then you'll catch yourself before doing them. Then you'll notice yourself thinking about them. So when you've been able to trace it all the way back to your thinking, then you're able to make a conscious shift in your mindset. And it gives you providence over your actions, and it's very powerful. So that's what I'd like you to gain from this great breakthrough leadership tip today. Make sure you tweet with us at BBS Radio and let us know how you've been able to put this into action or any questions that you might have on challenges that you faced when trying to put it into action. We get it. Sometimes it just brings up additional questions. So Ah, interesting. <laughs> so I just received a message that our featured guest today is going is unable to make their interview. So let me see how we're going to shift here live during the show so that we can make sure and serve your needs today. Um. I'm going to scroll down here and look at what is some of the content that we already have that could potentially meet your needs and keep us on our time schedule. That means that I am literally looking at conversations and timelines. Huh. As I'm talking live on air. And you know, one of the things that we actually have done is we shifted from a two-hour show to a one-hour show, which means a lot of our older interviews, when I say older, I don't mean things that are ineffective. I just mean something we've done previous to today. We're for 60 minutes, and that doesn't fit our new timeline. 
too. This is going to be a fascinating way to solve a problem live and figure out how we can serve your needs. So bear with me as I'm scrolling down seeing what we might have that could serve you well that will fit in that timeline. Oh, and I see one that I think would be really, really great. You know, I had a fantastic conversation with Kelsey Ruger uh, a little while back when we were talking about personas. So for those of you who've been hearing and understanding how important it is for you to be able to um, really reach your audience, in a way that is profound and makes a difference to them, it helps to understand what it really means to uh, hone in on the personas. This is the area we see a lot of people make mistakes. So thank goodness we've got that pre-recorded, and I'm going to go ahead and make that live so that you can learn something great this Monday and take it with you to work for the rest of the week. Talking with Kelsey Ruger today, and one of the things that – I found really interesting is, you know, I heard you speaking at one of our local social media groups last month, and and something that really stood out for me as a speaker and a marketer, and I'm digging deeper into that whole story attributes and persona creation for both my communities and my own business. It's been a little perplexing, and I've been asking myself a lot of questions. I'm I'm like, I almost feel like I'm walking across quicksand sometimes around this topic. So, you know, I read your latest post, and one of the things that stood out for me from that was your your statement about missing creative opportunities because people only pay attention to the common answers and normal outcomes. Right. So today I thought we would discuss personas and how they're important to our marketing efforts and where do they contribute to us in being able to craft good stories for our prospects and, and that our clients can relate to as well? You know, so I keep hearing identification and application of personas improved is, quote, a company's efficiency and quality and corporate cohesiveness and focus and decision-making at every level. So before we dig into this topic, Kelsey, would you please share with us What's been your experience in creating and using personas? And what qualifies you to teach us this thought process and skill today? Sure. Um, well, you know, like I always tell you, Michelle, I, um, I always describe my job as helping companies discover new ways to create experiences that people love. And a lot of times I think when people – find out about my background, that I've had a a strong development background and that I was a designer, they tend to think, oh, well, this guy built technologies or maybe he designed technologies. But I think what I have figured out over time is that when you can build things that people really like, it makes your job a whole lot easier, whether that's a product or a marketing campaign. And it really starts with understanding people at the core. And when people hear the word persona, I think Sometimes they think it's this kind of wishy-washy thing that people make up. But if you're doing a good job with persona development, uh, whether that's in a marketing uh, perspective or from a product perspective, 
what you're really doing is taking what we call those golden nuggets that customers or users will tell you about when you're doing your research, and you're turning that into features that they can really use. And I think that's really the core of, of creating a great persona. Mm. You know, one of the things that I, when I read, you know, I always go and research when I'm trying to do some things myself. And so I'm looking at the definition and I'm and I'm thinking to myself, well, surely it's got to be more than just us saying we have a female 35, 45 who lives in urban areas. She's single or divorced. She lives a fast-paced lifestyle, blah, 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 blah. So help us really wrap our brain around what is a good definition of a persona so we can kind of start with a good foundation. Okay. Um, well, personas really come from this concept of human-centered design. So it's driven by really having a deep understanding of the people that you're designing for. And so one of the simplest ways to do that is to sort of break your persona into um, some categories that I came up with. And on the one half, you're going to talk about what do they use and how usable is what you're you're trying to build for them. And on the other side, you're going to talk about meaning and relevance. And so on the use side, you might ask questions like, what do they hear people saying? Um, what are the quotes and defining statements that they hear? And you want to see what are they actually doing um, to kind of counterbalance that with what they say. And I think what we really miss out on uh, from a, a big perspective from the users is that meaning and relevant side and thinking about what are they thinking, what do they feel, because those are the things that people are really going to connect with. And we call that designing for emotion. And when you're designing for emotion, you really want to make your, your, the thing that you're talking about, and in our case, most of the time it's a mobile app, but you want to make it lovable. And that means you don't only think about what makes it useful and usable, but you also want to be cognizant of how your users feel before, during, and after they use your thing. Mm. So that would require us to really kind of dig deep in behaviors then. And if that's not your area of expertise, does it mean that you have to always bring on a lot of consultants to help you with this process? I actually think sometimes it's easier than people think. If you're a marketer, for example, um, sometimes you have to take off your marketer hat and you just become a researcher. And so it could be as simple as instead of asking the person, well, how do you feel? Let's say I was selling uh, a bottle of juice. And instead of asking them, well, how do you feel about this juice? Or, do you like the color of this label? I would go a little bit further and ask them, well, why do you drink juice in the first place? Like, what is, the, what is it that you're, you're getting from the juice? And um, a lot of research has been done on this. In fact, there was a study that um, was done by a professor at um, Harvard, and he wanted to figure out why people were buying McDonald's milkshakes early in the morning because it doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Like most people, <laughs> most people are going to drink milkshakes for lunch or dinner. But what he figured out is that the people that were buying these milkshakes were using them to keep themselves entertained while they were driving to work because they had a, a long drive, the milkshakes were pretty thick, and it would take them a long time to drink it. Well, those turn into what we call jobs to be done. And I think um, if you understand that a job to be done is simply you taking a thing that people need to get done and then them finding a solution, it really helps you uncover more of these 
attributes that would end up being a part of your persona? So when we're looking as a business at what a persona would be for something that within inside our business, what I notice is a lot of times there really needs to be more than one. So how do you keep them from kind of blending and turning into just a, a big blob on the paper? So, um, and I'm actually looking at one that we did for a recent project. What we did is we looked at the three different people that would be involved in a particular interaction. In this case, um, maybe it's a, a marketing person. And what we do is we identify either from interviews or from ethnographic research that we've done, like the key scenarios. So, for example, um, a scenario could be build the right skills and behavior. And then you give a description of what that means to the user, and you pick out from your interviews things that would help you communicate that. Mm. When I look at sometimes the definitions around these things and I'm and I'm reading, you know, different articles on it. One of the things that runs through my mind, and if it runs through my mind, I know it's got to run through other people's minds, is it sounds almost like you're just you're you're making up a persona. So how do you know what's the end result that I want from them and then kind of backing the data into a persona? So, first of all, I would tell you you if you're doing it right, you're making up a persona. What you're doing is you're making up a description that fits what you heard from user research. And so typically um, what you're going to put into that persona, it's going to be a day in the life. So like maybe you sat down and you watched a person do what the, the job that they're doing. Maybe you have secondary research from other sources. Um, you might have segmentation research or interviews or just general observations that you made. And that actually boils down to being your persona because if your personas are not representative or accurate, everything that you're working on is going to fall flat. So you want to make sure that um, you don't assume that you already understand the user. And I think most businesses make that mistake that they think they understand their users because they've sat down and they said, well, I want to target women between the ages of 25 and 35, and those women are going to have this attribute. Well, that's not necessarily – that's defining your target. That's not necessarily defining a user. Does that make sense? It does, and that's a good clarity to, to make in the conversation. So another thing that when I was researching for this, to try and wrap my brain around it a little bit better, is I kept also seeing language around an archetype description. So what's the difference between a persona and an archetype description? Oh, man, you're getting real deep. So I actually, in my storytelling um, workshops, talk about archetypes. So archetypes are representative of a certain structure. So, for example, like you could have a story archetype that is the hero's quest, or maybe it's an adventure, or it's a, a mystery. So the archetypes represent that structure that you can follow, whereas a persona, if you look back at the classic Latin description of what a persona is, is it's a mask. And so that mask is supposed to represent um, 
a face or a, a way something could be uh, portrayed. Does that make sense? Okay. It does make sense. So now I'm, <laughs> you know, isn't it funny how sometimes you can just ask a question and all of a sudden things start lining up? Right. <laughs> well, you keep talking about looking at research and, and data. Where do you look for data to help you in crafting personas? So uh, you already know this about me. I'm a very observant person. Like I watch everything. And so um, I've always been really good at making connections. And so for me, a lot of what ends up going into my personas could be research from different areas. And this is one of the reasons I always tell people you have to study outside of your discipline. Mm -hmm. So if you're a marketer, you got to read books on psychology or you got to read books on problem solving. And you definitely need to have a good understanding of why consumers make certain decisions. Because all of that stuff plays a part in you being able to, one, know where to go look for the data if you don't have it already or know how to craft the right questions. Um, and I think that if, if your listeners are going to want to get one tip is know how to write questions the right way. And I think most of the times when I see people asking questions about their products, they ask the questions from their perspective and not the user's perspective, and you're not going to get good insights from that. What you're going to get is an answer to a product question and not necessarily an answer to a user need. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because that seems to be one of the tripping points that I noticed in talking with a lot of clients around doing campaigns. It's like I have to keep... Uh, as a Texas terminology, roping them and bringing them back to the rodeo <laughs> because mm -hmm. they want to think about things from their perspective. What have you, what have been some great books that have helped you wrap your brain around how to step out of that role and start thinking from the consumer's perspective? Um, well, there's a couple of things that you could do. There's a great series of books. Um, by a guy named Marty Neumeyer. He calls them his whiteboard books, but one talks about being a designful company. There's another called The Brand Gap, where he talks about the problems that companies have in merging the gap between what their brand is and what people think their brand is. And it's always really different because what you want to be isn't necessarily what you really are in the public eye. Um, and another great thing that I always tell people to do is watch a video um, by Simon Sinek. It's a TED Talk video, and he talks about the golden circle. And nearly every time someone watches that, they say, I get it. Um, because what he says is people don't buy from you because of what you produce. They buy from you largely because of what you believe. And this is kind of that bridge where I, well, people will always tell me when I say, you got to go out and do your research. They'll pull this line, well, Steve Jobs never asked customers what they wanted. That's like, no, but Steve Jobs did have a better sense than most people of what user needs needed to be solved. And I think what, what most of the time is happening is people say, here's this product I have, and here's all these features and benefits, but one, they don't know why a customer wants it or what problems they're trying to solve, and they really don't have a good grasp on what needs the customer has, which are very different than your features. And so if you've um, really taken the time to read a book like uh, The Design for Company and you get that you really have to be able to communicate from a, 
from an internal standpoint what the customer um, what problems you're going to solve for the customer it's a lot easier to to handle those types of things what would you say to listeners that and, and you and I have both seen this, where people think that they are talking from that perspective. They think they are talking from what problem does it solve, but they're still doing it with the suit and the hat of, of features. So they haven't really fully stepped into that, that swimming pool of why. Um, well, first of all, I would, I would tell them to explain to me from a very um, specific um, customer standpoint, what they mean. And if you still don't believe them, that's when you can pull in a, a good tactic, which is called the five whys. And so if you were to say to me, well, Kelsey, I have this product, and I think that it's a great product for mothers who have children under the age of 10. And I'll say, well, why? And you, you may come back and say, well, mothers under that age or mothers who have kids under that age are really busy because the kids haven't quite reached a point where they're independent from their mother and they may need to use this product to help them make it through the day. And then I'd ask you why again. And it's really making you dig deep into why at a core does that mother you want to use it? Because it really has probably very little to do with the kids and probably very little to do with the, the time that she spends it. Maybe it's peace of mind, or maybe she has some other goal that she wants to get to, but she can't because she's always busy with the kids. And so once you really start to uncover what personas really mean, those things will become easier because – what I just talked about would become a part of your persona description, and your team should be working from that when they're working on a marketing campaign. So how do personas play out in the creation of stories? You know, we keep hearing that we need to share our story as business owners, and frankly, I have to say, after having several people talk with me about this topic, one of the common things that I hear them say is, I don't really want to go into my life story just to get clients. Is there another way we can do this? So uh, do, do you, I think that's probably the most common question that I get when uh, people ask me about storytelling because they'll say either they don't want to talk about their lives. Well, you don't have to talk about your whole life. It could be anything as long as it's a, a parable or an analogy for the situation you're in. The other thing people say is, my life's boring. I don't have anything to say. Um, what, do I talk about when I was a teenager? It just depends on the situation. And so I have, first of all, let me say, I think, especially for a business leader, it is really critical for you to show humility and for you to show human vulnerability because that's what makes people like you. And if you are constantly in this chase of trying to appear perfect, people don't buy that. And then people won't buy you as, as a speaker or as a leader. You really have to be authentic, and stories help you get there. And so if you're willing to say, when I was 16, you know, I, I tried to ask this girl out on a date and then go ahead and tell the story and relate it back to the situation. And I think maybe that's what people are missing when they ask you about their personal stories is they think well, that you want them to just pull out some random story. Well, nobody wants to hear a random story. It has to make sense in context. 
And it's interesting because when we've talked about that, that's probably the biggest bridge I've seen people have a hard time crossing, how to figure out what was applicable in their life that they can use to relate to what they're trying to discuss now. What kind of process have you found to be helpful when you're walking a client through this? So if if they're not going through like a, a workshop with me, um, I generally will point them to books and resources that break down a lot of what I would talk about in detail in simple fashion. And there's a great story by a lady, or a great book by a lady named Annette Simmons called The Story Factor. And what she talks about is that there are six basic stories that as a business leader you need to be able to tell. Um, you need to be able to tell your values and action story. Um, you need to be able to tell the I, I, why am I here story so people know why you're standing there, why you're um, in front of them. Um, you need to be able to tell uh, I know what you're thinking story. And those come in really handy in situations where the message might be tough to deliver. Um, you also have to have vision. You also have to have stories that are teaching or parables for the lesson that you have at hand. And probably the most important one is the who am I story. And a lot of times people don't realize that this story isn't just what you say. It's all about what you do and the things that people see from you on a repeated basis. Um, And one of my friends used to always say, well, um, my boss always says that people, um, you can write a great story and if you're a great speaker, people will believe it. And I think that's not necessarily true. I think from a leadership perspective, Um, people not only listen to what you say, but they want to make sure that your actions match the story. And so uh, I think when you're you're thinking about these stories, if you tell a story about being a really friendly, outgoing person and you don't feel it, it doesn't come across that way when you're speaking or it doesn't come across that way when you meet people in person, um, then it's not a believable story. Mm. You know, you said something earlier about Steve Jobs and how a lot of people will kind of use him as an example to not maybe do some of the work that they need to do. One of the things that I noticed when I interviewed a reporter who spent a lot of time with him is he actually did a lot of reflection and observations to come to the conclusions that he did, but people never saw that. Is there a possibility that we need to be looking at different kind of activities or behaviors for ourselves that will allow us to kind of get into that whole mode and mindset? Sure. And so, man, your readers are going to get a bunch of different books and things to read from me today. Um, That is what – there's a book called The Myths of Innovation or The Myths of Innovation. And I believe in the first chapter of that book, he talks about what's called the myth of the epiphany. And a a lot of people think that um, creativity is kind of like opening a box or or taking a bite of a sandwich and then, bam, it automatically happens. Well, what they don't know is two things. One, that there's a lot of things that are going on. Like, And it it requires people to make a lot of mistakes and try a lot of new things to come to these conclusions. But what they also don't ever get to see are all the mess-ups. And I think especially today because the media – Um, get so focused on the successes that we forget that successes are probably preceded by lots of failure. And so uh, guys like Steve Jobs do a really good job of 
um, talking about the successes and really communicating how they're going to help you. But we don't always do all the research into what were the things that happened um, before that. And, and people get frustrated when they hear that maybe there was no eureka moment that he sat down and said, this is the iPod. It probably was a lot of intuition that was built from having seen other products, what worked and what didn't work, and kind of piecing those together into to one thing. You know, one of the things that I thought was kind of funny when I was interviewing that reporter was the fact that it never occurred to Steve in the moment. It was years later when he was talking about things that he saw when he walked outside of his home in his garage, and all of a sudden he realized that he had been looking at an apple tree every time he walked out. And so it sounds almost kind of like that's right. a little bit of what you talk about as well, is you'll, you'll have those silent exposures, that sometimes you recognize and you become conscious of, and other times you don't. Yeah, so I, I do pretty much the same thing, right? We are actually, um, at Chaiwan, we're working on a product that's designed for salespeople. And I'd spent years working with sales, working in sales, building products and tools for sales reps. And when we started building this product, one of the things that I wrote down was, Sales reps really hate CRM, and, and you've got so many companies out there that are billion-dollar CRM companies, but when you talk to sales reps or you watch what they do, you can tell that CRM is more of a hassle for them than it is a tool. Most of the time, they're using it because they have to, and so one of the, the things that we've done is we said, okay, well, what do they really want to do? What is it that they're really trying to do? And when you start to think about that, that's how you would develop that sales rep persona. And so by observing and then combining previous experiences, and this, I, keep, I always tell people this, and I think I said this earlier, but you have to look at other industries. Um, when, uh, a lot of times when you work with web designers, they'll say, well, what sites in your industry do you like? Well, what if you work in a really boring industry? Do you really want to have the same <laughs> website? What you really should be looking at are companies that communicate the, their message in the same way you communicate yours. And it might not be someone in your industry, and it might not be an example that's readily available. That's why it's, it's good to be kind of a, a renaissance person that looks at a lot of different things. One of the things that I'm curious about, Kelsey, is what are the things that you find that you share as part of your story, and how does that show up in your work? So... Um, actually just finished rewriting my bio, um, and I rewrote it uh, kind of based on the, the recommendations of a blog that I read. It's called Get Storied, and he talks about how you should rewrite your About Us page. And I actually went in, and I'm in the process of redesigning my, my blog site right now, and a part of that was I wanted to look at what is it that I'm communicating, and am I saying it in a way that's Kelsey. And um, so some of the things that I'll talk about a lot, I'll talk about now the fact that I did grow up with ADHD and that I did spend a lot of time using my imagination because those things show up in my work today. I also spent a lot of time reading. And so I'll tell people it bothers me to see bookstores close. It bothers me that I can't walk in 
to a bookstore right down the street and just kind of browse around because who knows what I'm going to find. And so a lot of times when I talk about myself, those things start to come out in my bio. And before my bio was kind of, I don't want to say it was boring, but I kind of made the decision that the things that I had done or the career-based things, I could just tell people to go look on LinkedIn for that stuff. But if I really wanted to know, if I really want people to know what I'm about, how I might approach a job or how I might approach a particular project, it's better to tell them why I do certain things and why I approach it that way. You're talking about Michael Margolis, aren't you? Yes. Yes, he's awesome. He was on Speak Chat that you're going to be on in a couple of weeks, and yeah. everyone loved him. Yep, he's a great guy. There's a lot of times I don't always think of the questions to ask during an interview. Sometimes you actually have something on your mind, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, why didn't she ask this? So I'm going to ask you, what did I forget to ask you today that you think listeners would benefit from? So um, we didn't really talk as much about stories as that's a, the other thing, but I think all of this sort of ties together. Um, I always tell people, if you are going to be involved in anything that touches people, you better get a good grasp on how people actually operate because if you don't, you're probably going to be headed down the wrong path a lot and having to redo your, uh, redo your work. Um, the other thing I always tell them is that whole notion of um, the three tales, you know, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. It works, but it, that's not why people really are, are drawn to a story. They're drawn to a story because you give them a familiar pattern, and that's really what personas are supposed to do. Um, for a, a, a project is it gives them a pattern and then it gives them a reason why what you're building matters and it helps frame it for them um, so that they really understand. Uh, the other thing that I think I would probably leave your audience with or tell them to, to do is there's a great book and you and I have talked about this book before I think called A Whole New Mind by Dan Pink. And I think a lot of people know Dan Pink now because of his back of the napkin stuff. But before um, he did, I'm not not the back of the napkin stuff, but because of his um, drive stuff, where he talks about motivations. Right. Um, but before he wrote that book, he wrote a book called A Whole New Mind, um, where he talked about sort of this transition from being a really linear and kind of a, a, a knowledge-based society to one where we really have moved beyond um, that point, and we have to really understand some of the softer skills, like being able to tell a story and not just make an argument. And for those of us who grew up doing debate, that was hard. Mm. Uh, and not only focusing on being serious, but being okay with playing around, and that it's not all about logic. In fact, most of what you will see me present on and speak about, there's logic there, but I'm more likely to focus on the empathetic part because people buy into that stuff. Um, what I always tell people is they buy into what you're saying because it, it meshes with them, and then they go find the logic to make it make sense. So most of the time when you see people talking about logic, they're, they're never going to sell anyone with that. And um, once you can really become familiar with those things and really get connected with people, I think all of this stuff becomes a whole lot easier. 
You know, I have to tell you, I'm really looking forward to us doing our speak chat with you. That's where we're going to probably go much more deeper into stories because I can tell already everyone is just going to have an absolute blast with this topic with you. Thanks. Well, I want to thank you so much for just allowing us to kind of get a better understanding and a foundation around personas and and how that plays a part in stories because that's a really big theme this year for Speak Chat. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what else we end up stimulating for everybody when we hold your session. Thanks, Kelsey. Thank you. Well, for listeners who might not be familiar, Speak Chat is a Twitter community that I used to have a few years back. But, of course, you can see why I found playing this archive interview with Kelsey today really uh, fit perfectly in the fact that we were supposed to be talking about the strategic storyteller. Kelsey's a master at it, so I'm grateful we had that on hand. I've got a quick question for you, though. Have you visited and participated in a Startup Grind Fireside Chat yet? I want to encourage you to reach out and find out what's happening in your city and your country with Startup Grind. Startup Grind is the largest global entrepreneurial organization in the world, and that means that we're probably in almost every city and country you would ever visit or live in. We're in 300 cities and 115 countries now because people really enjoy what happens there. So, you know, go find out what that enthusiastic group of entrepreneurs and investors are doing in your world. If you happen to be here in Houston on December 13th, we're going to dive into what is Pitch a Kid and how can we gain clarity in our pitches from pitching the kids. And we're also going to find out what mass challenges new managing director of Texas is going to be doing to improve our startup ecosystems results here in this entire region. So check out what's going on in your city, in your country with Startup Grind. Now for our breakthrough bite with Yard Akalu, the co-founder of Alcove and our expert on the future of workforce. I always love third Mondays. How are you doing today, Yard? Doing great, Michelle. Thank you very much. Happy Monday to you and all our Breakthrough Radio listeners. Well, you know, I was so tickled when I saw that you're going to be talking about who will lead in the age of AI and automation this week. It seems that even though you and Jeff don't get an opportunity to really talk to each other, y'all really feed off of one another's segments. It's just brilliant. No doubt, no doubt, and I think uh, maybe we'll we'll be uh, you know sharing our synergies uh, at, at you know the end of the month next month where we can kind of all get on together and share our insights and lessons learned. Oh yeah, that's a fun episode. So I'm going to go yeah. ahead and mute my mic so you can like really help us understand the importance of this breakthrough bite today. Thank you, thank you, Michelle. So yeah, let's let's kick off our breakthrough bite on the future workforce uh, for today. And as Michelle um, kind of teed me up, I want to start by asking the question: Who who will lead in the age of AI and automation? Uh, as my segment focuses on the future of workforce, uh, I want to suggest that 
you know, many of our core businesses like HR or human resources, they will be replaced by uh, automation and will demand that HR leaders in particular uh, become more strategic uh, than their somewhat administrative roles today. Uh, and I hope I don't offend anyone uh, in HR, but, you know, hopefully at the end of this uh, segment, you'll understand what I'm uh, relating to. And, and just, you know, to understand why, let me just also just take a quick um, glance or, or recap of uh, the history of HR leadership uh, pre-automation. Now, historically, all, all organizations uh, relied heavily on processes that were driven by document generation. And uh, within HR specifically, you know, there were certain processes that had to be adhered to, planned and formatted uh, to apply uniformly to all uh, hire, uh, hires or employees, regardless of rank. And to some extent, we still, we, you know, we see that still today. You know, we have process definition, resume evaluations, interview schedules, employment contract. Uh, you know, each of these documents uh, had to be prepared accurately. They had to be printed. They had to be signed. Uh, both by the new employee and, um, you know, by, by HR um, as it was filed. Now, you know, this function was important in the formality of the hiring process. It, re it required such, uh, you know, a lot of time and was prohibitively uh, expensive. And, you know, over the years, there were early automation, uh, you know, surfaced, and it was used to capture, store, and access this information. Yet industry figures suggest that only about 30% of HR has uh, pursued automation. Now, as we, as we focus on HR leaders for uh, this segment, I want to highlight a thought leader, uh, Josh Bernstein, that I've mentioned uh, before. He's the founder and principal of Bernstein by Deloitte. And a few years back, he uh, proclaimed that big data uh, for HR and recruiting, uh, you know, was going to be, uh, you know, the, the kind of the capital um, investment for 2015. And his prediction quickly came true. You know, we, we've seen transformation happen in HR uh, functions uh, in many organizations. And there has been significant investment, almost, uh, I think, some $900 million in venture capital investment in, in, in the first quarter alone. So, so today we are seeing new data-driven processes uh, being integrated into uh, Fortune 500 companies and what we call machine learning algorithms or the automation that actually is carried out through artificial intelligence is helping companies in HR to source, hire, and retain uh, the right talent. Now, I want to just kind of highlight a couple of ways that's, uh, that it's being carried out, and, and maybe we can, you know, use an example or two. There, there's predictive behavior patterns that's surfacing with AI. Now, you look at almost like a minority report of, of, of hiring or when people will leave their jobs. Now, these analytic platforms are offering insights to HR or even recruiters on the likelihood of an employee uh, will leave their current position. Now, this is achieved by mining their online activity, for example. It could be 
how frequently they check uh, the job listing section on LinkedIn as a simple example. Uh, simulations are also being driven into the, uh, the hiring process where we're seeing a rise in incorporating scenario-based uh, work simulations uh, into the pre-screening process. You know, this is kind of almost like a, a try-before-you-buy scenario and, and really has uh, helped in the bottom line in, uh, you know, uh, employee retention and really dis- decreasing the time to hire uh, while providing a higher quality of hire where you're literally measuring the cap- uh, candidate's capability in real time, unlike my favorite uh, traditional resumes, which focus only on past work history. So, you know, that, that is certainly um, uh, an area that I think um, is coming to a tipping point and uh, will continue to increase in uh, its use. And then quickly, the other two or actually three uh, where, you know, we're, we're seeing evidence that uh, companies are using text or audio or facial recognition uh, to uh, enhance their uh, kind of their uh, HR system. Uh, tech re- text recognition, socially um, enabled insights that are, uh, you know, deriving a person's activity on, again, on these social uh, platforms. Uh, and one that I think is still pretty early. I, you know, a couple of years back, I had a startup called Opening Co. where we uh, had a bold ambition to integrate uh, facial recognition analytics into the video uh, screening process. And it was really, really interesting to see such a resistance, mostly because of, you know, kind of the um, liability and, uh, and compliance issues. Uh, but I do see that as, uh, um, you know, kind of a, a way that's being managed uh, carefully and will be integrated into uh, workplace analytics where, you know, facial recognition AI, if you will, is is kind of being incorporated into the video, video screening process and literally is analyzing the muscle movement uh, patterns in the in the face uh, to detect uh, people's reactions to uh, questions during video interviews. So to recap those um, kind of points, as HR automation redistributes labor or even eliminates it altogether, uh, HR leadership will need to determine how to best utilize these uh, AI and uh, machine learning technologies. And I kind of split them up in kind of two ways of, of or, or two strategies for, for implementation. And the first would be a cost strategy, right? You just kind of look at the bottom line and companies will use automation to replace labor. The, uh, the other way or kind of method or strategy would be the value, the value strategy where you seek to implement automation to complement labor and, and drive higher value work. So with those two approaches, you're either replacing, relieving, or empowering human capital, right? And in the scenario of, of replacing, technology is used to perform a job that was previously done by a human. And, you know, example could be you're looking at how ATMs machines, for instance, at banks, or McDonald's now is testing a self-service 
kiosk or an ATM machine, if you will, at stores that will now eliminate the, the need for a cashier. Uh, relieve, relieving would be where technology kind of takes on the mundane tasks of the everyday. And everybody that is listening that logs on the website and is annoyed by these, you know, these bots that pop up and ask you because they're live and how can they help you? Well, we all know that those are bots. But essentially, they've eliminated the need for frontline customer assistance, you know, that answers those general questions about a company's products or service. And then then lastly, the um, – the kind of the approach of empowering uh, people and uh, organization. This is where uh, AI will make workers more efficient by complementing their skills. You know, we've seen this for years happening in the auto industry where uh, semi-auto robotic manufacturing is uh, is kind of taking on some of the manual tasks, but is speeding up the process to make their company more efficient. You know, let's, let's just kind of, talk about long-term, uh, we got some research from Gardner saying or predicting that by 2030, uh, 90% of jobs as we know them today will be replaced by smart machines or AI. Now, as Michelle and our listeners will know, I typically like to wrap up my segment with a few takeaways about what this means for you, but today I'm going to do it a little differently and ask you a couple of questions. Uh, with all that I've said, you know, what what will you as HR leader or employee, you know, will you feel empowered uh, by working next to robots? Or as an employee, will you feel marginalized? You know, uh, to what degree will will leaders have to interact and manage actual robots versus people? Yeah, there there there's there's talk that, yes, we will be interacting with robots almost as we do with humans. Um, And for uh, HR leaders, what skills will you need to have in the age of the fully automated uh, HR function? So, as always, I welcome the opportunity to discuss uh, this with uh, anyone uh, further and can be reached directly at uh, yarid at getalcove.com. Uh, this concludes my, my three-part series on leading tomorrow's workforce. And uh, as with each and every future workforce segment, I'm here solely with my passion and my mission to help you future-proof your career by providing actionable insights on how to thrive in our disruptive digital economy of uh, tomorrow. So uh, as I wrap up, uh, you know, Michelle, again, really interested uh, to speak with you know, the team next month as we share our lessons learned and takeaways for 2017. Well, that sounds like a perfect segue into our close. So, Yard, thank you for such brilliance. We we love how you deliver that consistently each month. So my question for listeners now is who else would you like to hear and learn from? Make sure you let us know. You can always email me at thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. Again, that's the breakthrough specialist at gmail.com. And, you know, ask yourself, how are you going to use the advice that both Yard, Kelsey, and myself have given you today? This is Michelle Price here with Breakthrough Radio, delivering you the best business minds each Monday live. 
We're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, where we work with you a business down the street or around the world, telling your dynamic story 